Wow, do we have a good podcast for you today, guys and girls. I met with the fascinating Nick Cook, the author of The Hunt for Zero Point, and more recently his fictional novel, The Grid. Nick Cook is one of the UK's leading defense analysts. He's a former Jane's Defense Aviation Editor, so he comes from a uniquely insightful background when it comes to the blackest black projects and the razor-cutting edge of military and intelligence technology. Nick has been researching black projects, including anti-gravity and remote viewing, alongside high-tech aircraft for over 20 years. If you're curious about the recent US gun camera footage and Nimitz UFOs that the Pentagon released this year, read Nick Cook's book, The Hunt for Zero Point. Nick's latest book is called The Grid. It's a kind of Dan Brown meets Homeland meets X-Files. It's a fast-paced thriller which touches on high-tech warfare, deep state surveillance, and the nature of consciousness. The conversation literally flew by today, and there were so many other things I wanted to talk to him about. On the car on the way back, I kept thinking, oh, I didn't even get to the Nazis and Operation Paperclip, so maybe next time we'll get Nick back and we can talk to him again about all those things. But for, in the meantime, I think you're going to really enjoy this one. I hope you do anyway. I certainly did. Get your earphones on or pump the volume in the car or whatever and enjoy. Give it up, people, for Nick Cook. Yeah, I don't know what the kids have been looking at on the on the internet here, but um, it, it doesn't it doesn't work. So the, the videos don't work. This last week, uh, I I saw there was a speech by a retired lieutenant general in the Air Force. Very interesting chap, actually. I've never heard of him before. Called Stephen Quast. Anyway, he's fighting the case for the Space Force because obviously Trump has announced the Space Force. Everyone thinks it's another one of um, Trump's bonkers ideas, which sometimes. On, on occasion tend to have some substance behind it. And I think this, this is one, because I was one of the people who thought Space Force completely mad. But he, he basically made the case, and, made, and uh, he, he's, he's kind of fighting because it went to the House of Representatives, and they said, uh, the Air Force said, no chance, we don't need this, it's a waste of money. Anyway, comes to the point, he's, he's actually, it's interesting for you, it would be interesting for you to watch, and I was going to just play an excerpt of it, but the internet doesn't work, where he talks about... Um, we have the technology now to transport a human being from one place, from any point on the earth to another point in the earth within one hour. And the other point that he Qua made... Quast says that, does he? Yeah, Quast, yeah. Stephen Quast, this, uh-huh. this gentleman. Okay. Who's, and he's, he's obviously making a play, a bit of a political play to become commander of this, this new space force. Yeah. Now, the other point that he says is about getting energy from nowhere. So getting energy, which I think he doesn't say it's explicitly about zero point, but I think he's talking about this kind of technology. The subtext of it all is the Chinese are going to take this technology and it's going to be a bit like the Old West where people went out to stake their claims and eventually you had to send the cavalry or the, the Texas Rangers out there to guard these people, yeah. the, the commerce, guard the business out sure. So it's all about commerce. So anyway, I just thought that was uncannily similar to the work you talk about 20 years ago. And I remember when I read it initially, I thought, gosh, this is amazing. You know, it's the first I'd heard of any of those things. So I'm just wondering if you had seen any developments on your ideas uh, well, I, as yet. I, I, I do see the ideas in the Hump Zero Point actually rolling forward and coming full circle now, or beginning to come full circle. But I don't see it so much in a technological uh, 
way. I see it more from the point of view of, it's a consciousness thing, actually. 20 years ago, and you'll know if you've read the book, that while I was researching it, which actually was the decade before it was published, so I really started in about 1992-ish. Mm. Um, and as I say constantly and throughout the book, uh, oh my God, you know, when, when all of this come, it goes public, I'm going to get fired from my job because this is so out there. And journalists, especially in my position then, and I was a, you know, aviation editor for a very kind of uh, dry and respectable defence journal. Um, you just didn't talk about UFOs. You didn't talk about free energy. You didn't talk about perpetual motion machines. You didn't talk about especially anything. Especially back stuff. then, yeah. Oh, Even I mean, so, yeah. particularly, um, and so I'm, I'm sort of coming to the point. You didn't talk about that stuff at all then. And I, as I said, I thought it would be a fireable, sackable offence to, to bring this stuff out. Um, now, it's fine to talk about it. And if you look at who's talking about it, it's remarkable. You get Air Force, US Air Force generals talking about it. You get the skunk works talking about it. I happened to go on um, YouTube the other day and... There was uh, the uh, Lockheed Martin um, chief scientist uh, talking about um, the zero point field. Uh, and no one would have done that. Uh, I mean, I don't think they'd have done it 10 years ago. They certainly wouldn't, wouldn't have done it 10 or 25, uh, 20 or 25 years ago. So from that point of view, and the fact that everyone feels relaxed now to talk about this stuff, is great and it just tells me that there has been this total shift in the way we think which makes this conversation permissible well yeah absolutely i mean even you possibly saw i'm um, trumped in the oval office talking to george stephanopoulos i don't know if you saw this but it was all about the um these the so-called nimitz encounters sure i think that kind of prompted it because you, you may have seen that there were these incidents for people who don't haven't seen this uh, the aircraft carrier, the Nimitz, uh, there was some gun camera footage from, an, I think it was an F-6 uh, Tomcat fighter jet. It was F-18. F, thank you. Yeah. You're the aviation <laughs> expert. Thanks for that. Um, anyway, fascinating footage, which then what's, what's perhaps even more uh, exciting is that the, the, the um, Pentagon confirmed that it was their own footage and it's genuine. Yep. And it's an unidentified flying object. So... There two, then prompts two questions, one of which, of course, is, which everyone's jumping onto, is it's extraterrestrial or it's, 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 it's certainly aliens, which obviously that is a potential there. But I, I guess the question and why it's really fascinating to talk to someone like yourself, you've got this unique insight with your defense industry, Jane's Defense Weekly, which is a really, as you mentioned, a, a very renowned defense um, journal. So... I guess the question is uh, in reference to what you said. I mean, you get Trump talking about these incidents. Do you have any insights into your perspective on that? Because that, that's why I think it's fascinating to talk to you based on your book Zero Point, this, with these Nimitz encounters particularly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and going back to what we said before, I wouldn't have wanted to have talked about this previously mm. because of the stigma that gets attached to it. There is no stigma mm. anymore. The fact that the US Navy, backed by the Department of Defense, comes out and goes, this is genuine footage. Um, these encounters happened. We don't know what they are, um, but we are putting it out there in part because we want to know what they are. Now, that for me just opens up the whole conversation. 
Um, so it then becomes, of course, everyone is then obsessed about, you know, what is it about? What, what are these things? Mm. Um, I, I'm, I'm less interested in that question again, although, of course, it is intriguing. Um, and people, of course, go, uh, it's, you know, it's either a secret aircraft of some description that we've developed, you know, I mean, we collect, collective, we, we on the planet have developed, um, or it is extraterrestrial. Again, for me, that is the wrong set of questions. It is way too binary. And, and you know, my, uh, my, my, I was going to say investigation of this, my, my, my curiosity surrounding this subject over the past sort of 20 odd years um, is, is, is much more, uh, I'm much more curious about it than that even. Sure, I would like to know whether it's a secret aircraft or it's uh, an extraterrestrial spacecraft. But actually, I'm much more intrigued to know what it says about us and, and how we view the world and how we view reality and what reality is. Because it seems to me that every time these um, major sightings occur, you get a whole load of associated phenomena around it. It starts quite basically, and, and actually I'm borrowing here from a... Uh, an acquaintance of mine who's well known in this field, a chap called Jacques Vallée, who, oh, yeah, I, who yeah. I've um, met and spoken to a few times. Wow, okay. Because um, I think, sorry to interrupt, but I think it was he based, he was in, um, was it Close Encounters? Yeah. He was the scientist. In he the was the French, uh, French investigator played by Francois Truffaut wow. in Close Encounters. Mm -hmm. And Jacques is an amazing guy. And, and uh, I've, as I said, I've had a few chats with him um, over the past couple of years. And this is his theory. His theory is that we are subject to something called the control system. And the control system is a bending of reality. And, it, and reality appears to get particularly bent out of shape around these sightings. Um, it's a little bit like, maybe analogous to, the, you know, gravity getting bent out of shape around a large mass like a planet. Um, and it appears that whenever you get one of these sightings, and particularly when they make waves, they start in a very standard way. Oh, we're going to get the answers. All the answers are going to pop out um, because somebody now has admitted this or a bit of evidence has turned up here or there. Well, that's not what happens. Um, and now we're into the sort of second or third phase of the Tic Tac encounter, which is everyone jumping on the bandwagon, People wanting to know whether it's, you know, it's this binary question. Is it ET or is it our own? And it just isn't as simple as that. Um, and that's what I love about it. And that's what I think is endlessly fascinating. But it's frustrating too for someone who just wants the answers to pop out because I don't think they will. Well, you're, I agree. You're absolutely right. And it is, the, the, I think that the, the, it's fascinating because we know that it is something amazing, even if it's developed by sure. humans. Um, and it's a bit like this gentleman, the, the general class was suggesting, this is going to transform the world, it's new technology, and he was talking about the Chinese referring back to the, I think it was the 15th century when they made a political decision to burn their naval, uh, the whole entire navy, and then of course Britain went on to rule the, the seas. So he's kind of extrapolating that forward in, this, in a similar way. So even if you say, um, you know, this is developed by humans and it's secret technology, he seemed to be suggesting that this is going to define the next century. So, anyway, we've, we've, we've talked no, about that. No, I think he's right, by yeah. the way. I, I mean, I absolutely think he's right. 
I think that uh, we are entering an era uh, where um, all bets are off. And uh, I mean, clearly we've seen this in a, uh, in a sort of political and geopolitical sense since, I mean, heavily since um, Trump came to power, but, you know, a little bit before that even, that uh, whereas there used to be a fairly well-defined world order, that world order is now no longer defined at all. In fact, actually, we live in a world of chaos and disruption. Um, and in that world of chaos and disruption, things are happening very, very quickly. Uh, I mean, the pace of technology moves incredibly quickly. Um, the pace of thinking moves quickly. Uh, industrial innovation moves incredibly quickly. And, and, you know, back in the day that I was reporting engineering terms for James, you were talking, you know, turns in technology of months, if not years, sometimes decades even. Uh, now it's just happening in days and weeks. And so when General Quast, Quast, whatever his name is, comes out of the blue and says, this sort of issue is going to define the next decade and beyond, I believe that because this is a form of disruption. It's not only disruptive to technology potentially, but it's really disruptive to our way of thinking. Um, and like I say, I think this is much more about how we think and how we perceive reality than it is about uh, the technology per se. Mm -hmm. Although the technology is undoubtedly critical. And there is unquestionably too, I think now, a race on between the major powers um, to A, acquire this technology and B, perfect it. Actually, C, understand it, because I don't think necessarily that any of them do. Mm. Um, well, that brings us on then nicely to your your latest book, which is actually a fictional um, uh, depiction called The Grid, which is which is a brilliant, by the way, brilliantly written book. And I'm speeding through it. Um, it's um, it's kind of a, if I may say, it's kind of a Dan Brown meets Homeland meets X Files kind of thing. Yeah, that be a correct. Actually, you're um, not far off yeah. the way it was marketed, which was. Uh, it's Inception meets Homeland, or Homeland meets Inception, which, um, yeah, very much is. So thank you. I, I appreciate your yeah. comments, and I, um, yeah, no spoilers. <laughs> no spoilers. Because you're only two yeah. thirds. I'm, I'm racing through it. Actually, yeah. I was actually just reading a little bit just just before you, you we we met today. Um, but it's it touches on. I think it's okay if we talk perhaps about some of the the touch points there. Um, and you talked about. I think you alluded to consciousness and the way that sometimes these events and kind of bend our awareness or the way we can we perceive the world um i often think when i think about things like esp or like remote viewing you think about i for me personally i think about when i hear about a mother who says you you often hear about a mother felt something and then she knew and she called and then the child something had happened yeah good or bad yeah hopefully good but yeah you know what i mean and you i yeah. always think i you know what? I don't even question that. I believe, actually believe that. Um, when it comes to someone saying a psychic, for example, it's a bit more of a stretch uh, uh, for me. But the point that I'm trying to say is that if you believe that that mother can connect to that child <clears throat> or one animal, whether it be a deer or whatever it is, can, can have that mental connection, 
then that opens the whole the floodgates to the whole thing. If you believe that for a second, right. then it's so you can't be a little yes, bit afraid exactly. of this. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So um, I think it is a, a, a very fascinating, and I certainly have had sometimes, and I know it's always the, the for me anyway. I kind of think, could that be a coincidence? Then if you've got a statistical logical mind, you kind of go, well, that's probably about one in twenty thousand that, are, and then with for it to happen just then. So anyway. Um, the, that, I think that shows that something strange is is going on. We, and I mean, that's obviously a touch point in in the book. Obviously, you, you know, there's a geo, it's a it's a political story. It's a um, story of intrigue, and yeah, um, well, it, it, it certainly was enough to intrigue me. Um, so I became interested, as we've already discussed, mm -hmm. in this sort of whole notion of. Um, reality and how we perceive reality and you know I mean I'm not alone we all ponder the meaning of life and you know the older you get the more you ponder if um, you know if you're a kind of curious person uh, so mortality as well I think yeah For sure anyway. well of course absolutely and you know what happens when we die um, so uh, when I had a sort of itching desire to um, start writing fiction again because I did a long time ago and then I left it for non-fiction um, I did The Hunt for Zero Point 20 years ago nearly uh, uh, as you said but I've also I've ghostwritten a lot so I've, you, I've written okay. other people's books so right. um, okay. I you know I've, I've, I've always written but years ago I did um, some fiction and I didn't enjoy it too much because I preferred the world of non-fiction the world of non-fiction um, uh, and, and, and fact was infinitely more intriguing to me than a world of fiction. Um, but I, I come out of a phase in my life about sort of five years ago, and as we said a little bit earlier, the world is in chaos. I did some work with defence companies for a while, actually trying to get them to, um, quotes, fix the planet. Uh, and that was because I saw them having a whole load of expertise in realms like um, climate change, environment, energy, pollution, which they're not universally known for, but through my work at Jane's, I realized actually you could get into this and really help a great deal if you wanted to. So having come out of that period of my life, I thought kind of what now and, and, and how do we fix the world? And I think in that frustration, I'm presented with a question, um, which is, and it sort of pops out of nowhere really, which is... Uh, what would happen if we could scientifically prove the existence of God? So that was a sort of sparking, inciting idea. And then around that, it started to evolve. It then became not about God so much as about consciousness. Um, and then I think, well, actually, now I need a kind of vehicle to tell this story. And when I had been researching The Hunt for Zero Point, um, I'd come across uh, remote viewers. Now... Uh, I thought, because you know, when you get immersed in a world, you think everyone knows about remote viewing. Well, I realised through my publisher that everyone doesn't know about remote viewing. And the remote viewers were, uh, well, let's call them psychics for now, but they weren't actually, uh, or not all of them were. But they were um, hired, trained and paid for by the CIA initially in the early 1970s to go and spy psychically on the Soviet Union and other targets. This was because they thought, the CIA, 
that the Soviet Union was doing something similar to them. So they wanted to, um, you know, uh, parry that capability. So uh, I had then met many of the remote viewers. I mean, not before Humphrey Zero Point, but afterwards. In fact, funnily enough, um, soon after the Humphrey Zero Point came out, I was contacted by a guy called Ingo Swan. Now, Ingo Swan uh, was the lead psychic um, in that CIA remote viewing program. And he said, I've read the Hump Zero, Zero Point. Um, I would really like to talk to you about it because you touch on, uh, and there is, it's less than, it's maybe half a page on, on the remote mm. viewers. Um, and he said, well, you know, if you're coming through New York, will you, um, will, you, will you meet up and discuss it? And I said, yeah, sure. So I met him once uh, shortly, that was the first time shortly after the book was published. I then met him again, uh, maybe about four or five years later, and I still wasn't really that interested in, in remote viewing. But when it came to telling the story of the grid, I realised that that was the perfect methodology, the perfect vehicle, the remote viewing story, or, or, or to use remote viewers to convey the narrative, which, um, which is what, what happens in the story. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, actually, I brought, I don't know if you've read this book, uh, Psychic Warrior by David Morehouse. I have. It was yes. the first book, yeah. actually, that I read on, right, on yeah. remote viewing. Yeah. Um, so it is a fascinating subject, and I reckon, recommend that to anyone who's listening as well. Um, do you think that they are still, just as they did with the UFO uh, investigations, do you think that, and I know that they, as far as I'm aware anyway, they closed that project which was investigating remote viewing. Do you think that that has again been reopened in a in a top secret uh, way somewhere? Do you think they're doing it, still doing it? Well, Ben, I, I don't even know that they ever shut it down. Actually, mm. and um, so the official version runs like this: it kicks off um, in nineteen seventy one or two. Um, it, uh, as I said, it was funded by the CIA initially. But it was run out of somewhere called the Stanford Research Institute in California, which is a really sort of eminent um, uh, science uh, investigation, investigatory establishment. Um, as I said, I, I, I knew Ingo Swan. I knew the scientists at SRI who'd run the program uh, and developed the protocols with Ingo on how you devised remote viewing, which you know, in essence is what Ingo brought to it was you, um, uh, you literally give the viewer a set of map coordinates um, and then his or her consciousness slews to wherever it is that those coordinates are. And they can be anywhere. They can be on the planet or even off the planet because they did remote viewing of Mars and Saturn and Jupiter. Um, and then they realised actually that the coordinates themselves, the map coordinates, were meaningless consciousness would take you to a set of coordinates even if you wrote gibberish on the bit of paper. Oh. Consciousness somehow knew where the mind of the target uh, analyst uh, um, wants to go. Oh. So, um, so having said all of that, um, you know, this, this program was, it, it carried on for 20 years. Um, it had to have been successful because it was funded year on year. And then in 1995, 
it's outed and stopped. And I think the David Morehouse book, which, by the way, I mean, it got me into the subject, but if you talk to the other remote viewers, they really poo-poo that book. Is that right? they, okay. they say it's highly sensationalist. Right. There, okay. are, um, there are many other books written by remote viewers which actually detail the programme in great depth and great sort of scientific, with great scientific rigour as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so the programme terminates in 1995. It coincides with a report that's commissioned by the CIA, um, which uh, effectively poo-poos it. It says, this whole thing was rubbish. Um, we got very uh, little meaningfully out of it. You know, There was very little information out of it, which was above baseline when it comes to chance. Uh, so we're terminating it and, you know, good riddance. I mean, that is just, for me, that is language and behaviour that says we've got something, it works, but we want to throw the world off track and off scent. And so this thing now goes deeply black and we carry on with it. And actually, I've spoken to numerous people inside that tent who have strongly suggested that, it, uh, that, that, that that was the case. And furthermore, if you actually now go and look what the Russians were up to, so the Soviets did it, uh, sure enough, they've come out, they've, they've you know, outed themselves. Um, there are many good uh, pieces of documentation. There are some great books on the subject which document the Soviet program. They carried on, they took psychics with them, uh, in forward combat units in the Chechnya, che- uh, in the Chechen theatre of war, hunting wow. down what they would call terrorists. Mm. So you know this this thing worked well enough for them to do that, and I've no doubt that when you're tracking down elusive targets like Bin Laden, for example, who couldn't be found by conventional means at least to, be- to begin with, that um, you would employ uh, remote mm. viewers to uh, a- as part of the mix, the reconnaissance and surveillance mix. Wow. Okay, well, that's fascinating because that's a similar way that it happened with the, the sort of UFO phenomenon, wasn't it? They poo-pooed it and they said, okay, we've closed everything down when in fact we now know with Luis Elizondo and the, and the others that this was progressing and Nick Pope obviously in the UK. Uh, yeah, I, I think, I mean, they're all related, these things, but of course each one is different. And, and my own take on the UFO thing is that no one knows the truth. I don't think there is it, because as we said earlier, it's not as if this is a binary phenomenon. It's not as if it's ET or us who's developing this stuff. Um, so in that sense, uh, there is no kind of you know, black vault in the Pentagon where kind of quotes, the truth is held. Of course, there are pockets of the truth. Um, and I'm sure that there are sub-basements in, in the DOD where... Um, you know, um, uh, uh, colleagues and, and uh, uh, ex-collaborators of uh, Lou Elizondo are continuing to investigate this phenomenon. But I really don't think that anyone has a, a mm. whole handle on the truth because the truth is um, very ephemeral and it's quite elusive. Um, and I think they're in the dark, mm. them being, um, you know, the Pentagon, the intelligence community. I think they're in the dark pretty much just as much as we are. I a thousand percent agree with that. I think that's absolutely right. And I think people get overdo it and say, 
they're hiding everything, they're not releasing information, but I think this, the, this year's uh, releases are an example of them trying to say, look, we are trying to be open about it, it's just, we don't, we, this is something we can't get our heads around. Yeah, and help us too. Yeah. yeah. Um, and now the grid, so obviously you're touching on all these points uh, in, in the grid, which are, which are really fascinating. As I go through, it's kind of emerging more, more and more. Um, do you, what, what, what are your feelings on Elon Musk's lace, um, neural lace? Have you heard about that thing? Not really. Okay, so he's got this thing called the neural... He's, a, he's an amazing character, as you know. Sure. Anyway, he's invented this thing, which is worth um, looking into. The, uh, typical of Elon Musk, I think he over-promises sometimes, whether that's a bit pressure on himself or his employees, I don't know. But apparently they've developed this thing, which um, they cut open the brain. There's a, it's almost like a robot that laces thousands of neurons with um, fiber optics, for lack of a better word. Sorry, Elon. I'm sure it's much more high tech than, than that. It's very thin, extremely thin. And they, they then put a microchip on, their, on the subject's head. And this is going to be a way that we can interface with things like a smartphone without having to pick up the phone. So it, the idea being, the only we're already cyborgs because we're using mobile phones. Sure. <laughs> and our brains are kind of depending on it for a lot, just like I depend on my wife and perhaps you do too for a lot of things which I outsource and it just... A great deal. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> the, the, the idea being, you, with this thing, you, in the future you will be able to just access not necessarily memories, but all your photos, all your uh, data, and the bandwidth will be incredible because at the moment you have to, you've got the bandwidth of your kind of scroll through and you can't see everything so quickly. Um, I guess the question is, what do you make of that? Is that a technology that you think is realistic and... Yeah, um, do you I think that's a possibility. Oh, no, I do. I mean, and, and I think, it, again, it's evidence of what we were discussing earlier, which is the pace of technological change is so great today that um, as soon as you and I have discussed this, more or less, mm. you know, someone will have come up with something where you're actually doing it. Yeah. You know, that is the nature of the, you know, the, the fourth industrial revolution, which is what we are in. Mm. Um, so, yes, I, I, I do, and I think there's evidence of it, not just with Elon Musk, but you know, Google has been pursuing it. Uh, the idea of making us truly bionic mm. is, um, is accelerating. And um, as that... As we get used to that idea and the taboos around it start to disappear because, you know, people think they have the Terminator in their minds, you know, all the time. This is, yes. this is the future. Well, you know, it might be, but we have some control over it too. It's not like it's just going to yeah, uh, exactly. uh, rampantly evolve to a point where um, it's going to well, kill us all. It's going to kill us all. There will be, you know, before we get to that singularity... There will be um, forks in the road that where we have a choice on this. So to your question, yes, uh, I, I, I believe in it because it's happening. Um, for me, there's a bigger question. And again, without sort of wishing to spoil the grid too much, it is about, uh, it's about consciousness and what consciousness is and whether it resides in us. In other words, is mind... Uh, our, our, our minds uh, uh, are byproducts of electrochemical reactions in our, in our brains, um, as you know, much of medicine, neuroscience, and physics would have us believe. Uh, or is it actually held off site? Is consciousness universal? Is it something that 
we tap into in the same way that we, you know, you've just mentioned that in a sense, you know, we, we, we rely on our phones for so much now of our, uh, 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 for our sort of mental capacity, um, you know, even if that's uh, storing our memories. Um, so now, uh, you know, for me, that is, that is sort of the, the, the big question is consciousness for me is, I, mean, I hesitate to say the new battleground because actually I'm much more hopeful than that. I think that what we are living through now is a consciousness shift. Uh, it is being accelerated by, um, uh, you know, what I would call sort of forcing functions like the Trump presidency, um, by Putin's behaviour, uh, and by you know the emergence of China. I mean, all of these things are sort of forcing us to confront our place in the world and our existence much more fundamentally than we used to. And as we do that, uh, we, I think, enter a new age of examining consciousness and what it means and what it means to be us. And, you know, that, that whole question of um, where, where is my consciousness held? Is it within me or is it offsite? If it's offsite, wow. I mean, things truly open up then. It explains almost everything. It, it, it perchance might explain UFOs. It probably explains ESP, remote viewing, all of that stuff. And, you know, beyond that even, it holds some scientific uh, promise for our getting a handle on what might happen to us when we die, when we bodily die. So, you know, all of that for me is fascinating yeah. and ripe ground for uh, examination. And, you know, the thing that I'm fearful of, and this is with my defence background, is that if I'm thinking about it, then for sure uh, intelligence communities are. And, you know, what can we do? This is them thinking. What can we do to exploit that? You know, and that's kind of the scary piece. Absolutely, yes. Um, well, even if you look at it on the superficial basis of, for example, these fake documents that supposedly came out in the UK election recently that were all um, blacked out. So that's a fight for our consciousness on a very superficial level sure. in the press. But, um, you know, it, it, interestingly, Ben, going back to um, what we were talking about, Jacques Vallée, mm. Jacques Vallée's you know, theory about the, con the control system, you know, someone or something is manipulating our reality. And it gets particularly bent out of shape around things like UFO sightings. Well, um, we ourselves, I think, help to bend reality out of shape by doing things like that, like manipulating elections, like manipulating data online, like deep fakes. I mean, that all has a kind of ripple effect in the environment. And sometimes you get a, uh, a, a, a CIA phenomenon called blowback come to you. Blowback is when you, as the intelligence agency, put out a piece of disinformation to throw your rivals off the scent. But you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, that piece of disinformation comes back. And meantime, it's snowballed, and it com comes back and hits you in the face. And you then get confused by what you've put out there. You know, that's blowback. Well, in terms of a manipulated reality, I think... All of these things that we see out there happening in terms of you know, 
uh, faked elections, deep fakes, uh, manipulated data online. That's all twisting and bending our reality out of shape. So truth becomes less hard to define objectively. Um, it used to be really easy. We'd just read the newspapers and we'd watch TV and we could get a sense of the truth. It's really hard to get that now. Actually, my subjective truth is probably incredibly different from yours and you know, even more so from someone in another culture. So uh, on the one hand, that's a good thing. I think we should pay more attention scientifically to the subjective experience that we have because that hasn't been the case. Um, but on the other hand, it's scary because again, people can exploit that. Yes, well, and I guess that then on the other side of the spectrum, if you, if you take it from there to the sort of micro, from as the macro, and then look at the micro, I guess it's to some extent, you alluded to the science for a minute there, it's the physicists who might make progress on this kind of thing, perhaps, because there are a lot of, I know that there are quantum physical, if that's the right word, uh, processes happening with the brain. It's the, it's the most powerful supercomputer that we're, we've ever in the universe as far it as It is a aware. quantum computer. Yes. And they're developing these quantum computers, uh, as, as, I'm sure, as I'm sure you're well aware as well. And I wonder to what extent this battleground is also extended to the, to the laboratory, the lab, laboratory. Oh, sorry, I say the American way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, with the, the Heisenberg lab. and Silip certainly principle and all this stuff, to what extent they might come across something which then helps them explain why, how ESP happens. Well, maybe. And again, I mean, actually, uh, I, you know, I don't want to get too far into it because, yeah. spoiler sure. alert. Okay, and, cool. And, and so read the fine. book. Yeah. But, it, it, well, but you're touching on things. And actually, weirdly, I, I don't even know that you've got to um, I'm on, various bits yeah. in, the, in, the, in, in the book which touch on, upon this. But, yeah. Um, I'm not up to that bit yet, so I'm, I'm looking I mean, forward to it. It is, I mean, one of the things that um, prompted me, again, to write the book was that I had done some work um, into quantum computers. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, um, I'd done some work with a, an aerospace and defense company uh, about, well, I don't know, about five, six years ago. Um, and they were one of the very early uh, recipients of a, a commercially available quantum computer. Mm -hmm. And it was so very. D wave or something like it that. Was, it, was yeah, a D, it was a D wave. It was a D wave um, system. And, um, and uh, I, I could see then that what the potential for what this held, even though the, um, the system itself was, was very early generational stuff, uh, you, could, this was, you, know, you knew that you were witness, witnessing the thin end of the wedge. And, but, but what it also allowed for was to your point that there would be things that this capability would trip over which would suddenly open up a portal into something that no one had even thought of um and again uh, i can't go much yes. further because i'm giving away the plot cool. of the book but well, it um that's but it, it, yeah. it's it's all part of the mix uh great and then in terms of another aspect because it's obviously there's so multifaceted the whole subject but meditation to, um I've read somewhere that you are a practitioner, for lack of a better word. And yeah, I, I, I meditate. Yeah. I, I think it's a fantastic thing to do, um, and for all kinds of reasons. But, you know, to be able to switch off for uh, whatever it is, you know, uh, 10, 20 minutes. Um, I mean, 
you know, they say that even if you do it five minutes a day, it, you, you feel the benefit of it. Um, I've been doing it for a while. It's, uh, it's really, it really helps me in my day-to-day life. But also, I think it, you know, it, it just allows for, in that space that it creates, I think that it opens up um, things like your creativity, actually. Uh, you know, sometimes, I'm sure it's happened to you, you get an idea and you think, oh, where did that come from? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and obviously, uh, it's somewhere deeply buried in, in your subconscious. Um, but, you know, these things, I think, can triggered when you're, can be triggered when your mind is still. Mm-hmm. And so from that point of view, yeah, I, I find it tremendously helpful. Um, and of course, actually, you know, they say that it helps to, uh, you know, if you want to bind into... Um, consciousness whatever it is then um it helps it helps to do that too well yeah i think uh, coming back to the to what you were saying before about mind i think if you look back at some what some of the the old buddhists wrote there's big mind and small mind and so they were tapping into it all those years, centuries ago uh, some, sometimes thousands of years ago so Sure. There's definitely something something in that as well. And it's interesting that actually eastern uh, mysticism is starting to permeate western science. Uh, okay, that's another theme of the book too. So I have okay. to be careful. But, okay. Yeah. And it's only a, a minor mm-hmm. something, but um, it, it, it is it is very apparent that we are science is stuck on some very big issues. Um, you know, most people have heard about dark energy, dark matter. Uh, well, those between them constitute 95% of the known universe, and we don't know what they are. We only know what 5% of the universe is, and that's matter. Um, and yet, science is by and large a materialist viewpoint, uh, and it has a materialist worldview. And those are the guys right now who hold sway. They're the guys who say consciousness flows from matter, not the other way around. Eastern mysticism says matter emerges out of consciousness, and yet we're stuck on ninety-five percent in you know in, in the scientific realm of what the universe is. Shouldn't we then start really investigating what the Eastern mystics say, even if it's only to un- unlock some new thinking that can shift us on into a new physics paradigm where we are. Where we are willing to investigate the unknown, truly investigate the unknown in that way. Um, so you know, there's hope. Yes. Well, yeah. And I think the the fact that, as you said, people are a lot more people are meditating or are tapping into or becoming curious about these ancient um, this mysticism. I think that's opening. That's part of what is helping or encouraging people to think more about consciousness as well. And then on the other side as well, I guess it's almost a bit like you have with some Chinese medicines or old. Uh, Asian medicines and sometimes the science the western science catches up and says oh actually this is why they've been doing that for all these centuries or this is why that tribe is using that plant or so uh, sure. perhaps they're going to meet meet in the middle again well, I, I, I think there is a sort of the beginnings of a, of, of a merge of a meeting and I, mm-hmm. I, I think that's wholly to the good mm-hmm. by the way you know and I, I'm, I'm sure you mm-hmm. do too yeah absolutely um, do, now with Jane's defense quickly on that. So that was obviously for people who don't know. That's an, that is a very respected um, journal, defense journal, defense industry journal. Yeah. How do you get the? Um, how, so, so I guess governments all around the world use that as a reference, don't they? 
Yeah, for because you list all the weapons. Am, am I correct in thinking you list all the different types of tanks and all the different types of yeah. aircraft and everything? Yeah. yeah, and I didn't work on that side okay. of it. That, I mean, it, it was, uh, it is, um, a big publishing organization. And as you say, it it's very specialist. So, you know, governments, militaries would have a, we call them yearbooks, mm. on aircraft ships and tanks and a whole lot of other things as well. You know, I mean, it drilled right down mm. into mm. electronics and, and, mm. and, and there would be specialists in those fields. And, and, you know, some of these guys were brilliant, absolutely fantastic. Um, and, but I worked on a rather Johnny-come-lately um, part of the organization called Jane's Defense Weekly, which was uh, the, as the name suggests, it was the weekly magazine. And it was kind of more of a news journal, sort of like the Time or Newsweek of the defense world. And okay. we reported all around the world. I was the aviation editor of that for about 10 or 15 years. Um, and it, it was, you know, if you're in your 20s and 30s, which is what I was, it was brilliant. Mm. And if you were interested in technology, which I was, the charter Fire was... jets and everything. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, um, I got to fly in them and, and it was... Go to the air shows and get see, get to see the aircraft up close and stuff like that. I guess. Yeah, but, you know, actually just if anyone's listening who... Because, of course, the air show thing was funny because everyone was like, oh, God, that sounds great. You go to an air show for a week and you watch planes. I never saw any planes. They were, we were I was always interviewing people. And in fact, the planes were a bit of a disturbance because I couldn't hear what the right, interviews right, okay. were saying. But it was, it was, it, it, the access that Jane's provided because it has a great name in the industry was phenomenal. And my editors were very generous in allowing me to travel the world um, and see things, uh, explore things that I wanted to explore, which were obviously right on the edge of innovation and technology mm. and what's kind of what was known in that world mm. and I did that in uh, uh, obviously in the States which was truly the repository for me of the most interesting stuff that was going on but I was also on hand you know when the Berlin uh, Wall fell down and then there was this sort of brief window where the Soviet Union opened its doors to all the technology it had been developing in secret and me and my colleagues disappeared there and we you know we brought back some really quite extraordinary stories of bits of kit that had been developed by the Soviets in secret and we plastered that all over the magazine and that was a lot of fun. Wow cool yeah because I was thinking if you're getting all that information it must be a difficult to extract the information and b difficult to publish the information sometimes but yeah, I mean, there was, I don't think there was, there was very rarely anything that we didn't publish. Occasionally, and it never happened to me, but it did happen to some of my colleagues, that they were slapped on with something called a D-notice, which okay. you might have heard of, right, which yes, basically yeah. is when the British government steps in and goes, that's secret, mm. you can't publish it. Mm. It never happened to me, mm. but it happened to a couple of my colleagues. Yeah. Now, I'm aware we're coming up on, on time, so just a couple real quick uh, further questions. You met Ben Rich, I think. I did, so yeah. So that, that's pretty cool, because he's the guy who said... Um, he had a famous quote, we have the power to go to the stars, I'm get, not getting it correct, but paraphrasing, we have the power to go to the stars and we have the, the, the technology at the moment. And this was... And, and to take E.T. home, I think, yeah. was how he, how he finished it. Yeah, yeah I did. What, I, was I, he, what was that like? I, I, I enjoyed, I, I met him once at an air show, funnily enough, here in the UK. And sorry, um, sorry to interrupt, Nick. He was the head of Lockheed. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, well, he was actually the head of the Skunk Works. Oh, Skunk Works, okay. Yeah. So, for people who don't know, there is... Big Lockheed, or there were Lockheed Martin, uh, and then within it there was a, 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 a unit that developed all the secret stuff called the Skunk Works, which had been going since 1943. Uh, it was founded by a guy called Clarence Kelly Johnson, and Ben Rich was the second head of the Skunk Works. 
Um, I'm guessing I probably interviewed him uh, at the Farm Brayer Show. I think it was in 1994. It was a, it was around around then. He had his he had a book that came out at that time, so he was publicising it. And I uh, I had a long conversation with him then, and then I had a conversation with him actually in uh, as I was uh, researching the Humphrey Zero Point. Um, and I talked to him about a number of things, which actually are, uh, I think are detailed in the hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, people peren- perennially want to know. You know, has the Skunk Works developed? You know, flying saucers and built stuff derived from captured alien spacecraft. <laughs> well, not on my watch. I mean, not in all the people I spoke to. I mean, it was undoubtedly doing secret stuff. Mm-hmm. I. I just don't believe that it did any of the stuff that, you know, conspiracy theorists say that it sure. did, you know, relative to captured flying saucers and what have you. So when Ben Rich is talking about taking E.T. home, I kind of smiled to myself a bit because I think he was talking metaphorically. Yeah. I do not think he was talking literally. Uh, but he was a, you know, he was a great and interesting uh, man. But then there are many, many people in that business mm-hmm. who, are, um, who, who, are, who are just as fascinating. And did you get to go to Area 51? <laughs> uh, well, inside it? Um, inside it, no. Okay. But I, 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 I did hang out um, multiple times, uh, maybe, I don't know, three or four times possibly, on the edges of Area 51. I think I first went there in March 1992 with a buddy of mine who I, um, uh, 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 I, I, whose identity I hide okay. in the Humphrey Zero Point. Yeah. But we hung out in the mountain and we watched some quite interesting oh, things cool. take okay. off and land. But I don't think any of them was a flying saucer. Okay. And the, the last silly uh, kind of UFO question. Did, what do you think of Bob Lazar in that whole story? Because you may have seen well, the film that came out recently. I haven't seen it. Um, obviously, I'm familiar with who Bob Lazar uh, is. Uh, and for those who don't know, of course, he said that he worked in Area 51 on a propulsion system for a UFO, which he saw. Um, do you know what? I, I don't know. For me, it's evidence of the weird um, control system theory of Jack Valley, which is reality gets bent out of shape sometimes um, around this whole phenomenon. And I think sort of Bob Lazar, Bob Lazar's story is pretty good evidence of that. Okay, well, I think that wraps it up. Nick Cook, thank you so much. Pleasure really talking to you. Really fascinating talking to you. Well, it's great talking <laughs> to you, Ben. It really was. People, thanks so much for listening. As I said at the intro, there was so much more I wanted to talk to Nick about, but maybe we can get to those things next time. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to him. He's a great guy. In the meantime, check out Nick's book, The Grid. It's a great Christmas present for someone, and it's in the stores now, in the UK anyway. I believe it's also in shops in the US. Check it out. It's also in Kindle form. Amazon, wherever you get your books, check out The Grid. Have a good one, people. Peace. Peace.